Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators, but no one compares. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, three, four! Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast, and a whole load of badass. Actually, it's not three women this week, it's just two. Myself, Harriet Minter, and I'm joined by Deborah James, aka Balbabe. Emma and Nat are both away, but don't worry, they'll be back again next week. We talk to Pragna Patel, founder of Subtle Black Sisters, about forced marriages and just why the UK government is making women pay to be rescued. Plus, we meet Emma Rosen, author of The Radical Sabbatical, who explains why she did 25 jobs in one year and what she learned along the way. And I get very feisty and quite personal when it comes to January diets. Yeah, a bit of body talk here on Badass Women's RXL. This is what we like in January. Now, I told you we were going to be talking all about diets and dieting and whether or not January is the month for it. Now, we are joined in the studio by Monica Price, nutritionist, and Jessica Jones, a.k.a. the fat funny one. Brilliant. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Both of you have slightly different views about whether or not we should be on a January diet. Monica, let me start with you. You think we should be? Well, do you know, I think it's a good thing to do. Most people's re- um, New Year's resolutions are two things. I want to go on a diet and I want to join a gym. Now, whether or not they achieve that by March is another thing, but those are the two top resolutions that people make. So I think it's kind of a new year, new start. So it's a kind of, if you're thinking that way, then why not? Just go for it. But already, yeah. okay, already jumping yeah. in, I absolutely hate the word diet. Yes. So I am somebody who I don't want to diet. I don't want to get any skinnier. In fact, I want to get stronger. Yes. Um, I just want to feel good about myself and I, I couldn't care what I weigh. Yeah. So why do we have to use the word diet? I think it's because it's a recognised word. Yeah, that di- when, I, when I think of diet as a nutritionist, I think of healthy eating. You know, I think of a, a balanced diet. But I think you've got to say, because I've said a balanced diet, do that you, word diet of, is I just... Jane Fonda and a lycra eating a stick of celery. Ah, you see, oh, the thing well. is, you've got to think about your health. That's the thing. When you think about, if we're talking diet, we're thinking, am I going to lose weight? So you're looking at your body and saying, am I fat? Am I overweight? Do I need to do something about it? So if you're looking, if you're looking at yourself and thinking, 
I, I want to lose some weight. I, I'm feeling that I'm fat. Then I'm going to do something but, about okay, it. Okay, well, so, I mean, for a start, is that I word? think we need to have a conversation about feeling fat, yes. which is a very difficult thing. Mm. Jessica Jones, you yes. do not agree with this at all. Tell no. us why not. I just eat the cake and be merry. Like, I, honestly, I don't understand it. I don't like the term diet. Um, I also, I think there's a massive obsession with it and, and an assumption that if you don't diet, that you don't care about your body and that you're not healthy. And healthy and diet for me are very two very different things. There's a huge thing that people say, you know, if you're petite or slim, then you're classed as healthy. That's what we've been conditioned to believe. And if you're anything other than that, then that's not healthy and that's not okay. I'm fat and I own it. And but you've I'm had fat. a different journey with this because you started on Instagram yeah. as a diet Instagram, is that Absolutely. right? Absolutely, yeah. I, I started um, dieting and, and, you know, tracking my weight loss and doing before and after photos. And it was so damaging to my mental health and I didn't really understand how or why that was. And I don't think people talk about that side of it enough. I think there was massive pressure for me to lose weight because I wanted to look like everybody else on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And actually the day I turned around and went, you know what, I'm just going to eat cake and be happy mm -hmm. was the best decision I ever made. But the problem is with okay. eating cake and being happy, you've got to be healthy. You've got to think about the health implications. You know, it, when, you, when you're consuming a lot of calories, particularly foods that are high in fat, sugar and salt, this is going to pile your weight on. Now, the health implications of that are just, you know, yeah, but through the roof. This, this is what really so, angers me is the fact that actually the reality is um, there is a misconception that the skinnier we are and the healthier we look, the more healthier inside we are. The reality is that I was the marathon running vegetarian for 25 years that got stage four bowel cancer at the age of 35. And so I am somebody who on paper, you would look at me and say, I am fit, I am yeah. super healthy, I don't touch meat. You know, this whole vegan yeah. Jerry, well, that's my everyday. <laughs> and the reality is inside my body, I was not healthy. So the problem that I have is everybody, there's a, there's a lot of rubbish out there of everybody saying, you yeah. know what, do this, it's going to make you healthy. We can't protect ourselves, so no. so be happy and eat the cake. Yeah, but you can absolutely. still be happy and be healthy and you can still eat the cake. You know, you can still have it all, but what you're trying to do is, is try to fine tune it so you've got a balance. Because the statistics are that now one in four adults in the UK are suffering mm -hmm. from obesity. This is a huge problem and it's going to be a huge problem with our National Health Service. So if we don't don't start to look at what we're trying to trying to achieve as as a woman or or a, or a guy you know if we're looking at ourselves and saying are we healthy now i agree with you in some point because you know you can eat all these healthy foods and you know and it really doesn't make any difference to some people but the bottom line is you've got to look at yourself when you look at yourself in the mirror you've got to say to yourself look i just i either like this image or i don't like this image and if you don't like this image mm -hmm. then you've got to do something no, about it i just it. absolutely i'm sorry Michael, but i yeah. fundamentally disagree with that and i think it is incredibly dangerous for you oh, to yeah. say that. Oh, yeah. There are thousands and thousands of young girls out there looking in the mirror oh. with bodies that are perfectly fabulous and saying, I do not like this body. Yeah. And they are starving themselves to try and make oh, it well, better. Oh, well, that's something totally different. Anorexia. How dangerous to say it should be about whether or not you look in the body, look in the mirror and say, I like my body. We should be looking in the mirror and teaching young girls to say, do you know what? I do like my body. I like that it runs fast. I like that it moves. I like that it breathes for me every single yes, day. That but is if a you're, miracle. But if you're looking at your body and, and, say, and looking at your body and it's fat or overweight, this is going to give you longer term health problems and it's, it's no good saying it doesn't because it does. Statistically, 
factually it does. And so what we also know prone is that, to no, I'm sorry, what disease, we also diabetes. know is that telling people to go on a diet fundamentally does not help them lose weight. 93% of people who go on a diet end up fatter at the end of it than yep. they did at the beginning. Now, and so telling people they should go on a diet in January is setting them up for a lifetime of obesity. Well, you see, again, you're using that term diet because it, you're absolutely well, right I'm in sorry, that. Well, yes, t- right, It was yes, a term you yes. used, Monica, it so is you brought a, it in yes, here. It, there's, a, there's this word diet, and it is. It's one of those words, but you have to remember that when you when you talk to people about going on a diet, what you're trying to say to them is that you're, you're eating healthy, you're taking a look at what you're eating, it's the calories that you're eating. You know, you have to think about how many calories you're eating. So that word diet really constitutes that. You're looking at your your calorie counting, if you like. I don't think that's Jessica. Jessica, what do you think? Do you think I think there's a massive counting? focus on food. And health isn't just about food. So, you know, I know there's plus size women out there running marathons. Why is there such a focus on their diet and what they're putting in their mouths? You know, people would look at them on the street and think, oh, she's not healthy because she's a size 16, 18. Actually, you know, there's people like Bryony Gordon who are running marathons out there. So where yeah, is but that? It's, it's the health implications. Again, you know, we what we've got to try and do, it, it's all about food at the moment. And I get that. And as a nutritionist, people come to me. People come to me because they want to lose weight or they're trying to live a healthier but life. But why do you think they do want to lose yeah. weight? Because I'm sure that most of those people who come to you wanting to lose weight are not morbidly obese. I'm sure most of them probably could lose a little bit like we all could, but I'm sure 90% of the people coming to you are not more, morbidly obese, but no. they have been conditioned by society to be unhappy with their bodies. It's more about how people look and there is such a fixation on the aesthetic, what I look like, I want to look like everybody else, I want to look like the people in the magazines mm-hmm. and actually people don't talk about how you feel yeah. and that's why I touch on mental health. People didn't ask me how I was feeling, people didn't ask me what I, you know, my thought process was, it was just, oh you look great because you've lost five pounds, but nobody said actually are you okay it was just about what I look like and that is what my frustration is there's just this huge focus on oh you look good that's that's fine and you're saying people come to you because they want to lose weight well where is their idea why have they got this ideal in their head that they even need to do that to be beautiful you should be able to look in the mirror and say I look good it's why I get my kit off at a size 16 18 on the internet because I'm saying to women you can look in the mirror and say you know if I love it and it's all hanging down south then you should love yours too yeah, and you can you can do that but you you again you I go back to the to the, in fact, the word fat itself is, is because we've normalised the word. You know, the fat I find it is Let used. Let me tell you, as a fat person, we have absolutely not well, normalised the I, word. When, it is used as an insult yes. every single day. Yes. We have not normalised it. Thank you, Monica. Well, so let's that, not have that. <laughs> well, when, when, when people use that word, they either use it in a, it should be used in a descriptive way. You know, if someone's come to me and they say, what do you, how do you think I look? I'm going to say to them, you're fat or overweight or you're obese. But you're quite right. It's used as a deflammatory, insulting way, which I totally disagree with. But we've still we're still getting away from the fact that when you are fat or overweight, you are going to be more prone to diabetes, coronary heart disease, more prone to strokes. So it's no good saying that it doesn't affect your body because long term it will. I guarantee you, it but will affect your body. There are also lots of other things that affect your body: your genetics, your age, your Absolutely. lifestyle, where you live, how you treat yourself. All of these other things do, and we don't put the same moral emphasis on them that we do on yeah. weight. I have a massive issue when it comes to things, for example, like cancer. And we have massive adverts that will go around and it will say the, the second biggest cause of cancer is obesity. The reality is actually the biggest cause of cancer is smoking, and we know that factually. The second biggest cause is to do with diet-related stuff, but the reality is is actually a very, very tiny percentage. What we fail to recognise is the fact that actually 60% of cancers that are diagnosed 
diagnosed are genetically based. And the reality is I'm somebody who sits there and actually had, had, can't do anything about their cancer. So what I focus on and what we should teach, I have a nine-year-old daughter and I couldn't care what she looks like. All I care about is the fact that I want her to be, feel strong. And I exercise and I eat to give my body internally strength and strength to deal with everything that is thrown at me. And I exercise to to build up my lungs because I've had loads of operations and I don't exercise because I want to like look good I exercise because I want to feel good and actually we need to change that language because if I've got a daughter who's growing up assuming that you know what she has to go and Kim Kardashian did you see her oh, post oh, it was God. absolutely awful, awful to her millions and millions of viewers and she's holding up her a kind of shake saying yeah, this is right, what gets yeah. me perfect no it's not it's it's big lot photoshop really it's a lot of photoshop it's a lot of photoshop possibly some plastic surgery not (laughs) let's say that just there is this argument that is put out the whole time which is it's great for you to say i love myself and i look great and i'm happy with myself but if you are a woman who's over if you're a man if you're a woman or man who's overweight you are potentially going to be a drain on our health service what do you say to people who say that that's absolutely ridiculous. What about all the people who over drink alcohol? Because I've been to Haney on a Friday night and everyone in there is blooming drunk. <laughs> so I don't think it's fair to put a focus on that. And also, what about the cost of our mental health? What about the cost of people and the young women who are suffering with eating disorders because of what society is putting pressure on us? Nobody talks about that side of it and the cost of that. You know, I'm not going to cost the NHS much more because I've eaten six cakes or pizza for breakfast. I did do that today. No one judged me. I had an avocado for lunch. Balance, balance. Um, and it frustrates me that people are just so fixated on that and it just annoys me I mean you were saying about going to the gym you know exercise I joined the gym recently and when I walked in and they did my induction he ticked here to lose weight before I even said anything and I was like whoa 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 actually I'm here to do the yoga class (laughs) because you know I want to have a nap for an hour without the kids and I'm actually here to build my strength up you know I'm not very strong that's what I want to do I'm not here to lose weight but that was his assumption and I asked him you know if a size 10 woman walked in and joined the gym would you have asked her if that was her goal why are you assuming that and that's what people will do just because you're a bit curvy I think people just need to move away from what you look like and talk about the bigger picture and and mental health is one of the biggest biggest things that people don't talk about you know people like Kim Kardashian who are on the internet going to these really young impressionable women you should go and drink this and you're going to lose all this weight no you're not you're just going to poop a lot because it's a laxative and that is about it Yeah, but the bottom line is, though, you know, when you, when you see, when you go into a gym and the guy asks you that question, it's because he's looked at you and because he's a professional, he'll look at you and say, this lady is fat, this lady's overweight, she needs to lose weight because obviously that's what he's been trained to do. Yeah, but you know so, what? Most gym PTs are on a, like three weekends and <laughs> over a month to qualify. <laughs> I will take my view of 37 yeah. years in my body over their view on my body any day. But, you know, it, you would talk about the NHS. You know, I, I disagree with you there, Jess. It's going to have an enormous strain on the NHS if we don't get this right if we don't stop this epidemic of obesity which we have in the UK now if we don't stop this this just stem of people that we're just allowing to uh, just almost to feed themselves into into such a, a state that they don't actually know what they're doing I mean there was a call this week to, to class obesity as a disease some of the um, you know medical professionals are, co- are trying to call it a disease it's not a disease you are a human being you control how much food you put into your mouth and you control how much drink you put into you so you ha- it's all about willpower and self-control oh it's absolutely not about willpower it I've absolutely such a load is. of rubbish I absolutely I, is. Honestly, you need I more control say, that is such a load of rubbish Monica. but it's and not it's that sort of thing which 
damages young women, which but- sees them. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I've had people like you talk to me since I was age seven. Age seven, a doctor said, go on a diet. And do you know what? Strangely enough, it didn't work. Mm. I went on another diet after that and another diet after that. And do you know where I ended up 25 years later? I ended up in an eating disorder clinic with an eating disorder. But then so you haven't had you the support. for your terrible advice. You I will not have it had... on my radio show. Get out of here now. Thank you very much, Monica. We're done. This is Badass Women's Hour XL. Coming up next, we're talking to a woman who thinks she can help you radically redefine your career in 2019. Or at least take a little holiday. That's next here on Badass Women's Hour XL. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. But first of all, I don't know if you have seen this story this week. I don't know really how anyone could miss it. Uh, This is the story of forced marriage victims being charged by the Foreign Office in order to be repatriated to the UK. So this is British women who have been forced into marriages abroad. And when they have been, when they've called the Foreign Office for help and the Foreign Office has gone in and rescued them, They've then charged them for the privilege. I For the um, flight home, I believe. For the flight home, yep. If you're over 18 and uh, if you're over 18, they make you pay for your flight home and kind of any other costs involved in rescuing them. And if you can't afford it, this is a bit horrifying me, if you cannot afford it, they make you sign a loan agreement. Yeah, um, you can pay it back at £5 a week. And I'm thinking, do you really think? That's so delightful, isn't it? So So delightful. delightful. Welcome back to the UK. On the phone to tell us more about it now, we've got Pragna Patel, founder of Southern Black Sisters. Hi, Pragna. Hi, good evening. Good evening. (laughs) I was just astonished when I read this story. Were you aware of this practice? We were aware of the practice for some time because back a couple of years ago, the Guardian had actually broken the news about uh, 16 and 17-year-olds being charged. But what's really bizarre is that the government decided to stop charging 16 and 17-year-olds, presumably because they were deemed to be children and vulnerable, but carried on charging 18-year-olds. Um, And so we worked with the Times to really break this story because it seems to me that it's a completely arbitrary line. How does a vulnerable person subject to forced marriage abroad probably experience, uh, you know, brutal violence, Mm -hmm. rape, sexual assaults, um, imprisonment, slavery, suddenly become an adult at the turn of 18 and able to take responsibility for oneself. It just doesn't seem logical. So we have been aware of this, but we're really, really pleased that it's finally receiving the attention that it deserves. Why had the government started charging in the first place? Mm. I don't understand why we are, why British women who are being sent abroad... To yeah, be forced it, into marriage. Why, why on earth did they ever think it was acceptable to charge them to be rescued? Well, that's, that's the real question that needs answering because mm. um, it seems to me that at worst it's sheer incompetence where, you know, you have state officials who, you know, can't um, work out what the left hand and the right hand is, is doing. So I think that's, that's sheer incompetence at, at best. But at worst, is the idea, and this is what they seem to be saying in response to all this outcry, is the idea that, you know, they need, they have an obligation to the public purse and that they have to treat them like any other tourist who gets into trouble abroad. But what seems to be forgotten here 
is that you're talking here about vulnerable British citizens who need protection, not some hapless tourist who happens to get into some kind of difficulty and then needs to needs assistance to get home. Also, I'm thinking about the uh, university researcher who was imprisoned in, I want to say Dubai, yes. that's not right, was it UAE? Yes, UAE, UAE. yes. And I, I don't know, I could be wrong, but has he been charged Absolutely not. It yeah. just it just doesn't make sense because I mean, pregnant, I, to be protection honest, it ought to be a right. It absolutely should. A business transaction, which is how this government's seeing it. What happens is that these young girls are taken to the embassies uh, or the consular services and then asked if they can find family or friends to cough up the money for their return. Now, that's in itself a really bad practice because... They can't obviously contact family, but they're at risk. Mm-hmm. And even friends and others who assist them can be at risk. So that's a really stupid thing to do. But secondly, if they can't find anyone to support, uh, to financially support them, then they sign these loan agreements and their passports are confiscated or if they don't have passports, new ones are not delivered until and unless they've paid back the loan um, but if they don't pay it back within six months there's a surcharge so how can anyone see this as anything else than an opportunistic move to make a bit of money on the side it's I mean, it smacks of a protection racket well not frankly. just that pregnant to be honest to me it smacks of racism you well know, that's I'm... definitely also it's very discriminatory because the the people who are most likely to be disproportionately affected are black and minority women yeah. and girls who are taken abroad, yes. I mean, if this was a young, blonde, white woman, there would be mm. outcry. You can mm. imagine it would be on the front page of the Daily Mail. There would, it would be up in arms. It it's, seems to me that as though the government has gone, do you know what, this is a group that we think we can get away with charging mm. without anyone getting too upset about. Mm. Mm. Either it's a deliberate policy or even if it's not deliberate, it's not. It's a really ill-thought-out policy. And, it, and we are calling for the government to scrap the charges, mm-hmm. to scrap any guidance to uh, foreign office officials that, you know, insist on implementing such a policy, and to scrap the, uh, the policy and the practice of confiscating passports. I mean, these young girls, when they get back, they tell us that that's what worries them most. It's what's uppermost in their minds is the debt that they have. Now, you're talking about 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds who are really traumatized, who find it very difficult to resettle, to think about their futures in the absence of any family, friends, support networks, and who are saddled with debts even before they've been able to recover. Now, you know, in that situation, it, the, the government is just placing further obstacles, and it just makes a complete mockery of the idea that, you know, and the rhetoric that we're going to protect victims of forced marriage and do what we can to eradicate the practice. Actually, what they're doing is penalising young girls and forcing them to pay for their own protection. And then as a result, Hungary, are you finding that most of them are ending up homeless? They, they're getting into a vicious cycle of kind of... Yes. Where, where yes. does it lead them to? Where, what are you finding? Well, that's, that's, the, that's the really hor- horrifying and difficult part because a lot of these girls were already very vulnerable. They've gone through huge trauma. Uh, they've been up 
you know, huge upheavals. They have no support and they need a lot of intensive care, counselling, practical support, emotional support to try and survive, to rebuild their lives, to think that they have a future. Um, sadly, some girls have slightly more resilience and emotional strength to cope with their isolation, to try and find, imagine a future that's better. Others just spiral into further debt, abuse and exploitation. But practices like this by the government don't help. They really don't help. They just compound the vulnerability and the trauma that these young you know, citizens face and and um, actually, you know, hinder any kind of progress towards recovery. And then tell me a little bit about, so you founded a charity called Southall Black yes. Sisters. And then in, ter- yeah. in terms of, tell me a little bit about what you guys do to try and, well, to try and help the situation. Well, we're, we're actually been established for 40 years now. We support vulnerable black minority women who've gone through experiences of violence and, and inequality and we try to assist them through frontline advocacy casework, you know, supporting women with um, their daily needs in order that they can live a life free of violence. With the forced marriage victims, many of the victims are repatriated. We actually support them um, the minute they arrive in the UK. So we do have a partnership arrangement with the forced marriage unit. And we are alerted when women have been rescued, when young girls have been rescued. We will pick them up from airports or other ports of entry. We will provide emergency accommodation, try to meet their needs for clothing, for food, medical support um, and counselling because many arrive with nothing and have no money and are completely destitute. And and we try to support them um, into uh, accommodation and to try and get back into education or employment and to just try and survive as uh, on their own. Now, the problem is that when their passports are confiscated by the forced marriage unit until they pay back their loans, it's very difficult for them to access education, welfare services, benefits, because they have no proof of identity. So the whole thing is a complete and utter joke. It's a mess. And it really needs to be solved. On the one hand, the government you know, says it's doing a lot to, to combat forced marriage. It recognizes it as a human right. And then on the other hand, does everything to undermine it. What would you like to see the government do I think the government has to heed this outcry. I mean, we're really delighted that, you know, the matter is receiving public attention and that most sensible, rational people are horrified and shocked by this practice. We hope that people will help us put pressure on the Foreign Office to stop the practice. We're going to, we've started a petition so people can you know, log on to our website, hopefully by Monday, sign a petition to have the uh, charges scrapped and the policy that guides officials scrapped on this matter. Uh, Secondly, we'd like the government to put more resources into shelters and care packages for repatriated young women and girls. Uh, They need a lot more support than they currently is available to them to try and cope. They're vulnerable children or very young adults, and they really need a lot of intensive support to, to prevent 
them from spiraling into exploitation, abuse and debt and drug abuse and so on. Um, and um, if anyone wants to make donations to help us uh, support repatriated young women and girls, again, if they go onto our website, Southall Black Sisters, um, there is a fundraising page, and that money will go to meet the direct costs of supporting young women and girls who've been returned or who are subject to forced marriage here. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Pragna, for joining us. Pragna Patel, founder of Southern Black Sisters, uh, talking about forced marriage victims being charged a fee by the government to be rescued. It's so ridiculous, isn't it, when you actually read that out? I know. I just... it. And it's it also breaks the my amount. heart, actually. It's, it absolutely breaks my heart. It's the amounts that I find amazing. £740. Yeah. I'm not saying that's a little amount of money, but on the grand um, scheme, in terms uh, of the administration that is going to cost them to actually recuperate that money. Yeah. From these girls who've been traumatised enough. Yeah. I just... We'd love to know your views on it, really. What do you think? Do you think that that £740 the government should be trying to recoup it? I can't, I can't see how how that can be okay but if you do i would I would love to know why that is and or if, you know if you've been through this if you know someone who's been through this we'd love to know like what do you feel about this are you angry that it's only just coming out well, of course you can tweet us at talk radio coming up next emma rose an author of the radical sabbatical she's going to be sorting all your career woes if you want to quit your job and go traveling this is the woman to talk to you that's next here on badass women's hour excel Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Vampire Strikes Back. Badass Women's Hour Excel on Talk Radio. If you are one of the hundreds of thousands of people out there who has put get a new job or quit my career or tell my boss where to stuff it on their New Year's resolutions list, then our next guest is for you. She has had 25 careers before the age of 25, more than that, 26, I think. Um, and she is the job-changing expert. Emma Rose, an author of The Radical Sabbatical, joins in the studio. Emma, welcome. Thank you Hi. for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about what happened 
when you were in your mid-twenties. So I had a bit of a quarter-life crisis, you could <laughs> say. Um, after university, I went straight into a traditional grad scheme working in the public sector for the civil service. And it was meant to be the reward after years and years of hard work and far too much money spent on a university degree. And finally got there. My parents were proud of me. Everybody was so proud of where I was. And I was proud of where I was. And um, within two weeks, it turns out I absolutely hated it. Um, oh, very no. very quickly and what what was meant to be my my success started to feel like um, a punishment really and I absolutely hated what I was doing and had no idea what to do about it in any capacity um, I do think that particularly when you're young or actually more so as well as your careers go on it's part of your identity it's part of who you are when you first meet somebody you say oh hi my name is x and I do y and it's very much who who you are and so it, it left me with a bit of an identity crisis as well um, and it left me with a question of well what do I do instead if not this um, but the, the career that I was in followed on quite well from my education and my degrees I'd been working towards this specific thing for so long that it left me quite quite lost I guess um, and so I carried on though in the grad scheme for, for quite a while longer um, until I got to a point where I just just couldn't do it anymore um, and I decided to write a list of all the different jobs I'd ever wanted to do just as a bit of a thought exercise like not really ever <laughs> intending it to go anywhere um, and there was a list of 25 and I was just about to turn 24 um, and so the idea of trying 25 different jobs before my 25th birthday came about and um i think things like this come about either out of inspiration or desperation <laughs> <laughs> and this was probably the latter i would say um i just did not know what to do next and so i decided that that would be that um so you quit your job i did yes um i quit my job um, um what was the first thing you went and did the very first thing i went and did was archaeology in transylvania <laughs> Yeah, of all things. There's a diverse list of careers on there. Um, so I, I called up my old university uh, archaeology department and just winging it and said, do you have any excavations I could come along for? Um, and thinking they'd maybe say something for a couple of days in the UK. And they, they literally turned around and said, we actually really need somebody to go to Transylvania in two weeks' time and we'll pay. Can you come? <laughs> Brilliant. It's not something you say no to, I guess. <laughs> so I like quickly was googling where that Transylvania actually was, whilst trying to like figure out flights. Um, and two weeks later, uh, yeah, I ended up in the Carpathian Mountains digging up a Roman palace. Um, wow, for two weeks, amazing. Yeah, it started off. It started off with a bang. To be fair. Um, what did you uh, tell us about some of the other weird and wonderful things? What else was on the list? Uh, there was alpaca farming in Cornwall. <laughs> Um, I, I always liked was animals. Was it specific alpacas that you That were wasn't the for? intention. Okay, okay. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, no, I'd always been interested in working with animals. I liked the idea of being a vet, but my grades were yeah. nowhere near up to scratch for that. Um, and so I liked the idea of farming. And I, I took to Twitter and quite literally just put out a tweet saying, is there any farmers that I can come and work with for a couple of weeks that need an extra pair of hands? And in 10 minutes, um, an alpaca farmer from Cornwall said, yes, come down and work on my farm with me. Um, but, you know, this was this was in, uh, I guess, August, September. The weather was still really good. And I was like, I can get a tan while I do this. And so I called her up and said, yeah, yeah, I'll come down in the next few weeks. And she's like, no, you have to come in January. If you like farming in January, you are meant to be a farmer. So, um, And did you like it? 
Yeah, I did. did I really you? did. Well, it was it was one of the jobs, and this is true for quite a few of them, that it completely broke down my assumptions and expectations of what a certain career was like. Um, and I think we do have these preconceptions for plenty of different types of careers. We glamorise certain ones and we assume others are terrible for reasons that we've just grown up with around stereotypes. Um, and when I got there and started doing the farming, less than 40%, I would say, of the actual work was sort of traditional farming type jobs that you would imagine so animal husbandry and care of animals the rest of it is being an entrepreneur because that's how you make a living as a sustainable farmer in the 21st century so the the woman that i was working with and i loved that it was a woman farmer as well um she got her alpacas she sheared them she got the wool spun into yarn and then the yarn made into high-end luxury children's wear and then sold to department stores around the uk and she managed that entire process. If you think about all the different steps from a business perspective that are involved in that, from creating your own website and doing social media marketing to negotiating with Harrods or whatever it was and factories in Eastern Europe, she did all of it. And that's what being a farmer can mean in the 21st century. And it was just something I, I would never have known if I hadn't have gone and done it for myself and learned by doing. What was the worst one that you did that you thought or maybe the one that didn't live up to your expectations? Or... Yeah, no, there, was, there were a few kind of like that where I, I'd glamorise them and I really wanted them to be the case where they were where they were a certain way. But what I think I learned from this year is figuring out what my strengths were and what my weaknesses were and figuring out that actually some jobs don't play to my strengths. And quite frankly, it's not that I didn't enjoy the job, it was just that I was terrible at it. Absolutely terrible. What so, were you terrible at? Well, Phyllis? publishing, sadly. Um, so being an editor, um, I'm, I'm a little bit dyslexic. Um, I, I, can, I can pick good words and I can put them in the best order, which is obviously why I have a book, but it's just spelling them is a little bit of an issue. But obviously as an editor, that's your main job. Yep. So when they would ask me to sort of go through and proofread um, books, I just... Oh, it was awful. <laughs> so I have to ask, how did you fund this? Were you were you paid? What happened? Yeah, so um, the majority of the placements covered my expenses and some did go as far as to pay sort of a salary. Um, but I'd spent the year before while I had been working saving as much as I could anyway. Um, I was starting to save a tiny fraction of a house um, deposit. Yeah. And so I kind of just requisitioned all of that. Um, and I also worked part time in the background doing freelance writing jobs um, and ended up working for some of the companies um, as kind of a freelance part time thing after I'd done the work experience placements with them. Um, so, yeah, it just about covered my costs. I didn't make make my millions, but um, I did cover my costs. Incredible. So, Emma, after doing all of these jobs, what did you learn about yourself? Where do I start? <laughs> um, I guess that I learned predominantly that. It, I'm not. I'm not trying to tell people that they should chuck in their jobs and do 25 others. I'm saying it's about work happiness. That's what's absolutely crucial, and that not enough of us are happy in what we do. It's something like 72% of millennials want to change career completely, and 54% cross generationally do as well. There's a big problem of career happiness in in the UK, and that's something that I want to change. And I guess that's the big thing that I learned is that I went into it thinking I'm going to pick one, and that's what I'm going to do and that's not what happened at all I, I did 25 and I didn't end up choosing a single one um, I ended up turning the whole project into my career in itself do you think people need to try different things because you know it's, it's really I love those statistics but is that just because people think the grass is greener and so they kind of go I'm not very happy but actually um, you know they then go and do something else and realize actually you know what I'm still not happy. I, yeah, I think you're right. There is a definite danger of going from the frying pan into the fire. Everybody's yeah. so unhappy in their jobs that they just pick the next best thing 
which ends up being even worse than where they were before. And I think that's a real problem in in careers education and sort of the lack of diversity of careers education that we have growing up. It's very one dimensional and we don't really have the opportunity to try things out. Um, And so I quite often make the analogy to dating in the very few of us marry the first person that we kiss. That's exactly what we do with our careers. We tend to do one internship and one job and then that's what we go and do. Uh, And I think we need to be dating around a little bit more with our careers. Um, both as as teenagers as we're growing up in university and then as we get older as well there needs to be more of an openness to careers exploration without needing to commit to studying an entire degree or something like that yeah I like what you're saying in terms of more about what you've learned in terms of what you're good at and what you're not good Mm. at but also because for me um, I look at kind of the generation coming through so I've got a couple of young kids I used to work in education um, and for me the thing that I find amazing is the kids that I taught for 15 years in education none of them will be doing well you know the first kids that I taught are doing jobs that didn't exist when they first came into education if that makes sense Um, and that's what I find amazing in terms of anyone in the education system today right now when they actually come through it so when my 11 year old son actually comes through it he will be prepared for a job that right now isn't isn't there. isn't even exactly isn't even there. exactly so, so we're preparing kids for jobs that don't yet exist you know the famous quote that jobs that don't yet exist yeah. using tools that we don't even know that haven't been invented that's that's exactly it. i think it's something like 65 percent of jobs don't even exist yet that they will be doing yeah. which is you know well over half and i think that's something that we need to be working on at a more strategic level in terms of our careers education for our young people is okay well how on earth do you educate a generation of children for a world that we can't even imagine yet we can't even imagine as teachers ourselves so how do you prepare them for that and I guess that's why I'm such an advocate for just getting as much experience and as much diversity of experience as you can because I think that's the best way to learn it's learning by doing in as much as is physically possible so that you can kind of take those skills that you've learned from trying out five different things and apply them you can pick them up and apply them anywhere you need to how do you think get that balance because I can think of a couple of mates who you know 10 years down the line are still trying to figure (laughs) out what they want to do and I'm not saying you have to then go and focus on something but there becomes a point where you can't really live on your mates safe anymore. You can't be the graduate forever. And and if my mate's listening I know who you are, you know who you are (laughs) and there does become a point where you just have to go no actually I need to take responsibility for my life and I need to kind of find out where, where I'm going, make a good living for myself, whatever that looks like. How do you change that mindset from kind of going right I'm exploring learning about myself to now going oh right got to get a bit real about this well you know how how do you do that transition I guess so for myself that's why I started the project to begin with it was to give myself a defined set period of time in which to answer that question rather than saying I'm just going to flit around for the next decade it was okay I've got a year it's got a start date it's got an end date and that's it and that's, that's it. all that's all the yeah. time I'm getting I, it, you need to put an end date on it at some point because I completely agree with you um, but what I think people are increasingly doing and again there are studies that back it up is they're going more towards portfolio careers so the idea of having multiple jobs at the same time through part-time freelance or contract work and by doing that you specialize in skills rather than in perhaps industry specific knowledge so instead of applying your skills kind of vertically within one industry you're going horizontal so I would say now I probably specialize in communications both written and verbal and I apply that in multiple niches rather than in just one and it's a different way of looking at the world of work but I think it's something that will make us more resilient as a workforce. Do you think that we have got a little bit fixated with the idea of being happy at work? 
you know, I remember when I first started out, one of my first ever bosses saying, if you're enjoying your job three days out of five, you're doing better than about 90% of people out there. So be really happy with that. And I, I sort of remember thinking, oh, gosh, that seems like quite hard work. Um, but, you know, the reality is you're being paid to do it. It's not something that it would be lovely to say that we all just do the things we love. But you have to go out, you have to make a living. Are we asking too much of our careers to be happy with them? I loved your analogy about it's not the first person you kiss. I sort of feel that about when we say, oh, my husband completes me. It's like, well, that's great, but you probably need somebody else to talk to about this, that, and it. Can't just have one partner for everything. Are we asking too much from our careers for that to be the focus of our happiness? I think that's a fair point, but I guess I would flip that and say, well, as a nation, we're really, really unhappy to the extent that 12.5 million days working days were lost last year due to specifically work-related stress that cost the economy 43 billion and that's the impact of being unhappy in our work and you know that that means that we have a big productivity issue in the UK so like output per hour is 26% higher in the US than here yep. Um, because I think there is a bit of an attitude problem in the UK. So if you think about Americans and, um, you know, there's a very, if you've succeeded, it's like, yeah, good for you. Well done. It's congratulatory. Exactly. Whereas I don't think we do that in the UK. I think there's a bit of an attitude problem in terms of, oh, you're getting ahead of yourself. You're trying, like, you're, you're not, that, is that really you? Um, and I think that's reflected in, in our productivity and it is one of the lowest in the Western world. And I think that's partly due to our approach to work. You are expected to just be quiet and get on with it you you know get back in your place a little bit we've actually got a caller on the line who's having a quarter life crisis so they need some help hello leah may hi um this is unbelievable i am going through everything you're talking about right now and i was in the car driving home and i have to call in to speak to emma rosen this Thank is incredible you so much uh Leo, okay. tell us a little bit about the quarter life crisis what's going on so i am 24 years old i'm going to be 25 in three months i have been pursuing a vocational, uh, yeah, obviously it's vocational, but from the age of 15, I was pursuing a vocational like pathway as far as my education was concerned as well. Um, I did a vocational degree. I did countless internships and work experiences in that degree for free uh, or in that um, industry for free. And then I studied it, came out of university, was a little bit lazy, got some low-level jobs in it, um, dipped a little bit my toe in some other avenues within the same industry, and I'm doing quite well now. I'm, I'm middle ground, but I, I'm a freelancer and I keep taking these sort of two to three month sabbaticals saying I'm going to find myself and going to figure out what I really want because somehow I'm not connecting with this job I've been pursuing for nine years. And I don't know how to navigate this because I know now I've accepted this is not for me. How many times can I say this is not going to work? And now I just don't know how, how to navigate the next step to doing something totally different. It's terrifying. I guess so. My first question to you would be when you say you have these kind of two to three month long sabbaticals when you're trying to find yourself and figure out what you want to do and who, who you are. What, what's your approach to doing that? How do you go about trying to figure that out? So there was one time when I, I mean, I went away for a little bit. I mean, it's, it was pathetic. I went away for like three weeks and then came back. And it just turns out that it ends up being sort of month to a two months because of the freelance nature of it. And I sort of take that time. Um, to, and I was I tried doing I tried totally adapting my CV and sending them out to these um, jobs I was seeing online that took my fancy but I didn't hear back from any of them I wasn't being active enough that's absolutely true but I also wasn't serious enough I thought and then sort of a job just comes along 
and then you just take it that's in your same field and then you're just back in a cycle mm. and I was like okay I'm going to try and enjoy it this time yeah I guess what I I kind of I obviously speak to a lot of people in this situation and it is so common so the first thing I want to say is you are not alone you are so not the only person going through this believe me Um, and I guess I would start by saying I I tend to split it up into three categories um, and have sort of three categories of of looking at at what makes you happy and the first one is the more traditional one in terms of thinking about your skills what are you good at and what do you enjoy and they're not necessarily the same thing but it's finding what the crossover is between the two Um, and that could be things like leadership or teamwork solving problems that sort of thing Um, the second one is more a lot around what do you want to get out of work what's important to you and so for me it was making a difference it was having a positive impact on society and that and that was why I joined the civil service to begin with Um, and it it inspires everything that that I do now and it's kind of having that clear goal around everything and everything else fixes around that the third category um, and I think this is the one that is most overlooked is about working environment Um, and what sort of working environment makes you happy what do you enjoy so for me it needs to be variety and it needs to be some form of non-desk based work I know that I don't work I'm not I'm not the best person I can be and I'm not happiest when I'm doing sort of a nine-to-five office-based job that does not suit me and I'm now trying to design a career around the type of working environments that do and being really really honest with yourself about that Um, and so I kind of that's that's where I started and that's where you know in the book I advise people to start as well and kind of going through those and having a really clear list of I guess career attributes before going away and thinking about okay well these are the types of jobs that I might want to do so you you make sure that the jobs fit into what you're actually looking for rather than the other way around and I think very very often we see a job spec and we think oh I'll, I'll fit into that I can do that but I think we need to be flipping it on its head a little bit and thinking about well does this job fit me and who I am and the way that I work best Brilliant. Yeah, I Thank hope you that so helps much. a little bit. Good luck. I'm not even. I'm taking notes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, you. Um, do you know? What? Tweet us at Talk Radio your email address if you can, or DM us your email address, and we'll send you a copy of the book. I've just decided. We're oh doing my now. god, that would be amazing! Uh, <laughs> Thank you so much. You're very welcome, and I hope that it was helpful for you. Um, if you, I've got some other queries. You've got literally probably about two minutes. But you can also go and buy the book. The Radical Sabbatical by Emma Rosen is out now, is it not? Yes, it yes. is it's available out now. on Amazon. Fabulous. Uh, lots of really helpful tips and advice mm-hmm. there. And Emma, if people want to get in touch with you otherwise, where can they find you? Uh, so you can find me on social media at 25before25 or at my website www.25before25.co.uk brilliant thank you so much for coming in and chatting to us and bringing your brilliant advice and wisdom and your fantastic stories with you we have loved having you this has been the badass women's hour podcast with me harriet minter natalie campbell and emma sexton if you want to hear more from us you can come follow us on social media at badass women's hour hr um, or leave us a review and tell us how much you love us we really need to feel the love five stars should do it Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365 day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.